Welcome to Season 3 of The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Ah, New Mexico. What comes to mind when you picture the land of enchantment? Is it desert? Mile after mile of desert? Well, that is fair. There's plenty of it, and I can vouch for the heat. JT spent many summer holidays visiting family friends there. But the state is also full of gorgeous wilderness, including massive mountains and snow fields, as well as verdant green fields fed by the Red, Gila, Pecos, and over 240 other rivers. It's not just a dust bowl. Hot air balloons over the desert? Yes, that is a lovely aspect of the state, and makes an amazing postcard. The Wild West? You betcha. Most of the most famed legends of that time spent time in the state at some time or another. What about a bit further back in time? Yes, from Pueblos to Chaco Canyon, there is a massive and fascinating array of ancient sites there, not to mention the astonishing Carlsbad Caverns. What about some of the vast mineral wealth? Many older listeners will know that New Mexico has long been famed for its uranium ore mining. Well, what goes hand in hand with uranium? Yes, you guessed it, the U.S. military. And you have some of the most famed military installations of modern history here. White Sands Missile Range, Sandia Labs... Then we have Holloman Air Force Base, Kirtland Air Force Base, and not to be forgotten, Alamogordo, where the first atomic bomb was tested. Well, at least the first atomic bomb in modern times, and at least the first that we know of. What else comes to mind? Long-term listeners will know we've already made a few sojourns into this enigmatic corner of the U.S. Victorio Peak, Forest Fen, and who could forget about the famed Farmington UFO Armada? But I would bet a bottle of excellent Chardonnay from the Gruet Winery, one of more than 50 wineries in the state. Did I mention that the first vines here were planted along the banks of the Rio Grande in 1629 by Spanish missionaries? I bet you didn't know that. Well, I'd bet that bottle of Chardonnay that most of you who enjoy what I cover would think of one word, Roswell. New Mexico has had more than its share of famous encounters, dating back to at least the airship sightings of 1897 and 1898. And there are oral traditions among the Apache, Navajo and Pueblo nations about visitations by the Star People for as long as they can recall. New Mexico is one of the states you will see us coming back to over and over, so you will quickly become acclimatized to its altitude and climate. Tonight we are heading to Midstate, nearly the very dead center of New Mexico, to a little city called Socorro. I bet many of you are hearing a very faint bell in the back of your mind, and you'll be saying, I've heard that name, JT. Well, my friends, after you hear the astonishing and at the same time depressing tale of a 30-year-old police officer who had one of the most compelling sightings of all time, I'll bet that Roswell won't be the only case that comes to mind for you anymore. When J. Allen Hynek heard about the case, he began conferring with other curious Northwestern University faculty members in what he called the Invisible College. So yes, folks, this case prompted J. Allen Hynek to form his Invisible College. Captain Richard T. Holder was sent by the military to investigate, and what followed has been one of the most investigated and documented close encounters, but also one of the most frustratingly overlooked cases in history. And yes, this is one of the JT files, 
Cases that I can remember reading about from a very young age, and one of the encounters I've never forgotten or failed to marvel at. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to Season 3. Boy, some days I didn't think I'd get here. It's been a really rough week, I'll tell you, between the migraines and some of the other stuff that's been going on, but I am feeling much better now, and I'm so excited to be recording this astounding case for you. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. There will be a good amount of you that have heard of this case, but I'll tell you what, it's really a deep and complex case. I've got a massive script, so this is more than likely going to become a two-parter, so we'll just see how we go. Now, I want to make sure that I do give a few very quick shout-outs to Shambra, who is the chapter president on the Isle of Wight in the UK. Shambra has been feeling a bit under the weather, so I really do hope that you're feeling better soon. And she's a, she's a huge fan and an excellent supporter, and I appreciate everything she does. And also to Two A Day in India, very talented person, very supportive. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you for following the program, and thank you for sending me different things and collaborating with me. And to every one of you that sends me stories and articles, hey, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It does really broaden my horizons. There are many things that I see, and in fact... In the News of the Dam this evening, I've got quite a few that I'd seen, but also I had Dave from the old 77. So Dave is the chapter president in Missouri, and Dave sent me a few of the same articles. So it just goes to show that great minds think alike when we're looking at stuff like this. So there are a few things going on in Season 3, folks. There have been many things going on in the background. Some of the things I haven't gotten done that I wanted to, but I got a lot done in the hiatus for the program. Now, I've done seven different episodes on the CIA UFO files, and there will be more in the future. We're just going to see. I'm going to fit them in as I can around your normally scheduled content, so I continue to be working at that. I've moved to a podcast co-op. It's not 100% completed, but part of that's my fault. I had some issues while I had my migraine and screwed a few things up, so... If you're looking for older episodes of The Paranormal Sun and you can't find them, please be patient. They'll be sorted out soon enough. Basically, when I had to reroute the RSS feed for the program, I screwed it up. I'm working through with my new podcast provider to get this sorted out as soon as we can. And hopefully, early this week, it'll be all sorted out. And you can go back and find the old episodes if you can't already. So I'm very excited to be joining this podcast co-op. It's initialed TNC, which stands for That's Not Canon, and they're based out of Australia, and Zane is the founder and basically like the chairman of this group, because again, folks, this is a co-op, and that's one of the reasons why I was excited to be invited and to join this group. It's not a channel or a, a podcast network. It is a co-op, so there's a lot of collaboration. There's lots of help that goes on in and amongst the different people. So if you hear some podcast advertisements on here and you're wondering, oh, JT, well, since when are you doing that? Well, I've always tried to support other podcasters, but I haven't necessarily had polished ads. But I'll be having a few of those on throughout the season of these different podcasts from TNC that I think you would enjoy. So if you want to know more about any of those and it's not self-explanatory, of course, shoot me a message, get a hold of me, and I will point you in the right direction. So aside from that, I've got other things on the boil. It will definitely be an exciting season. Season 3 is going to be another, as with each season, I always want the season that we're on to be better than the last. And we're just going to keep plugging away. 
Now, we are currently in lockdown here uh, in New Zealand and specifically in Auckland, where I live. Uh, it's supposed to be a three-day lockdown, but we will see. So basically, we have had the UK variant of the COVID-19 turn up here in the community, and we're on the second day, so we should know more um, today, maybe tomorrow, as to are we going to be locking down for longer than three days or what. But yeah, we will just keep our fingers crossed, but yeah, safe and sound and okay here so far. Now, uh, again, as always, people who are new to the program, but also long-time listeners, will get in touch with me and say, hey, JT, what's the best way to find the links for the Paranormal Sun, follow along, etc.? So first and foremost, if you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. Besides that, the second best way is that you can either go into the show notes of each episode, and you'll see a hyperlink right at the very beginning of those show notes saying, follow and support the program here. And if you click on that, it will basically take you to a landing page with all kinds of links for everything from the Instagram to the Facebook to Patreon, if you'd love to support the program through Patreon uh, and all the other things, the website. You can pretty much find everything that you want there. The other way to find that landing page is just to go to the Instagram page. So the paranormal sun with an underscore between the and paranormal and paranormal and sun. So if you go on to Instagram and click in my bio there, you'll see a link that will take you to the same page. Now, for those of you who have supported the program, especially Lisa and Harry in North Carolina and a few other friends of the program, thank you so much because your kind donations are what allow me to get a lot of these things done. Now, again, folks, don't feel pressured. I know everyone's got a busy life and we've all got our expenses and everything else to deal with. But rest assured, anyone who donates to the program, that money goes back into the program. I'm revamping the Patreon page. I haven't got that quite completed. And there are a few other ways that you can support the program. There's Buy Me a Coffee, which is a small one-off donation. Like It's basically, if you wanted to shout me a coffee, you can do it there. I'm also working setting up Ko-Fi, which is another website similar to Patreon. And you can always just go into the PayPal link, of course, and also send whatever you may feel you'd like to donate. All of those things are very helpful, and they really help me with the program. I will have some longer-term goals that I'm going to start rolling out on Patreon, some of the other things that I'd like to do. One of those things, I've mentioned it before, if I could get enough donations in future, I'd really love to do a past life regression and have it recorded for you to listen. As you all know, especially the longer-term listeners, I've done several episodes on reincarnation. I find it a fascinating subject, and as always here on The Paranormal Sun, I leave it up to you, the listeners, to decide. But I will say there is definitely some compelling material out there with some of these reincarnation cases when you've got people who know nothing about the past life. There's no way they really could have known about the person that they claim they were in a former life, and yet they have all this information. It's one thing to say that I was Napoleon in a former life, because you can pick up a book and read about Napoleon. Well, you can't pick up a book and read about a farmer that lived very close by to you, you know, 100 kilometers or 100 miles away. There's no way to know those kind of things, and especially most of these cases were long before the days of the Internet. So I found it very fascinating. And don't you worry, we'll definitely be doing more reincarnation episodes in the future. So, in Season 3, 
We'll be following the same format as we have so far, which is basically one UFO episode and then one other episode. Now, this Lonnie Zamora case, as I say, may very well end up being a two-parter. Now, if that's the case, then it'll be episode three before we get to something else. But this case is just, like I say, it's fascinating, and I'm not going to give it short shrift. And I'm really thinking, like I say, this is probably going to be a three-hour-plus episode when I'm finished, so we're probably looking at splitting it into two. Now, to anyone out there who I told you I'd give you a shout-out and I've forgotten this week, hey, look, I do apologize. It's been a rough week, like I say. My head has felt like somebody hit me in the back of the head with a pipe wrench, so if if I miss out, send me a message, send me a note, drop me a note on Instagram or Facebook, and I'll be happy to get on there and give you a shout-out in the next episode, by all means. So with those things having been said, my friends, it's now time for the News of the Damned. Now, for those of you who are new to the program, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort, who was really one of the first people to gather and categorize a lot of this information and a lot of the subjects that I cover on the program. So Charles Fort gathered anywhere between 30 and 60,000 handwritten notes on different things, everything from sea serpents to lights in the sky to ghost ships and everything in between. And he categorized these items and then published books about them. Now, Charles Fort referred to any subject that was ignored by science or conveniently forgotten about as damn data. Therefore, this segment of the program is always called the News of the Damned, as an homage to Charles Fort. So the first one here, Dave in Missouri sent me, and I've also got my own article on it, which I sourced, which is the original article. So this one is quite an interesting title, and we will stand by and see if there's more to this than what's listed, and we'll see how interesting it really is going forward. But again, it's just another one of those UFO ones that's been floated out there, and it does make me wonder what else is yet to come in this year. Are we going to get anything significant on the 20th of June or whatever it is? Or will there be more things like this? So Dave sent me a article from The Sun, which is a UK tabloid. And they're not exactly known as the most <laughs> uh, legitimate source for things. So they refer to this original article, which I've got here. Now, I saw this on Instagram earlier in the week, and I saved the link. So this one is from a website called ufoexplorations.com, and this is titled Anthony Bregalia's UFO Explorations. So this is the gentleman whose article they mentioned in the Sun article. So I'm not going to read both. I'm just going to read this original one. So it says, Pentagon admits it has UFO debris, releases test results. And it just says February 2021. A stunning admission by the U.S. government that it possesses UFO debris was recently made in response to a Freedom of Information Act request filed over three years ago by this author. In a reply letter, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, or the DIA, has ended decades of speculation by verifying that UFO material has indeed been recovered. 
Now, officially referred to as UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, rather than UFOs, some of this material was placed with a defense contractor for analysis and storage in specialized facilities. Incredibly, part of the information released discusses material with shape recovery properties, much like the memory metal debris found fallen at the Roswell UFO crash in 1947. And based on the documentation received, it appears that the retrieved debris exhibits other extraordinary capabilities, in addition to remembering their original form, which, when bent or crushed, some of these futuristic materials have the potential to make things invisible, compress electromagnetic energy, and even slow down the speed of light. Although much of the report's details are redacted, what can be gleaned is that these technologies represent a literal quantum leap beyond the properties of all existing material known to man. Finally, the whereabouts of the UFO debris held by the contractor is unknown. Some months ago, they laid off their employees and ceased operations. Former company officials, when reached, refused comment. The FOIA Request The original 2017 FOIA request made to the DIA asked for the physical descriptions, properties, and composition of UFO UAP material held by the government and its contractor. This request is unambiguous in its meaning. It refers to UFO UAP material and physical debris recovered by personnel of the Department of Defense as residue, flotsam, shot-off material, or crashed UAPs or unidentified flying objects. The FOIA request itself can be seen in full here. And as always, folks, I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. In their reply, the DIA amazingly agrees that it has documents responsive to my request on recovered UFO debris and its analysis. The program under which it was administered, ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, and that their defense contractor, Bigelow Aerospace in Las Vegas, Nevada, has stored the material. They also provide some reports related to the possible applications of the studied material. The delays and excuses offered up during the years waiting the FOIA request were many. They include that the record search involved other agencies that needed to be consulted, and I had been emailing my former FOIA officer, though she'd left months ago and never received my follow-up communication, to, to a reassignment of my case to the DIA's FOIA chief, Steve Tomiski, after a lawsuit was threatened with the retention of counsel, the DIA somehow, after so very long, acted to respond. The Relation to Roswell The information received includes several pages of what are called Advanced techno Technology Reports on NITOL, not, sorry, Nitinol, a shape recovery alloy. I've heard of this. Nitinol has similar properties to the memory metal found fallen as debris at Roswell in 1947. The pages found within the FOIA request on Nitinol explore its potential for integrating it into the human body for the improvement of health. Wow. Well over 40 witnesses to Roswell have mentioned a metal-like material that could remember itself when deformed or folded, returning to its original state seamlessly and instantly. In a series of investigative articles appearing in the UFO Exploration website article archive section, the case is incredibly made, is credibly made that Nitinol represents our first attempts to replicate a material of the craft's construction. The Roswell debris was flown to Wright-Patterson, or sorry, Wright Field, in Ohio after the crash. It was later renamed Wright-Patterson. Some months later, Wright granted a contract to Battelle Memorial Institute to begin phase diagrams or recipes for mixing nickel and ultra-high-purity titanium, required to make memory metal. General Arthur Exxon, 
base commander at Wright-Patterson in the 1960s, who flew over the crash site in 1947, spoke to researcher Kevin Randall on tape. He stated that it was his understanding that some of the wreckage being tested was comprised in part of specially processed titanium. And in September of 1947, two months after the Roswell crash, General George Shulgin of Air Intelligence described the materials of construction of the flying saucers as potentially being made of composite or sandwich construction utilizing various combinations of metals and plastics. Some of the Roswell crash debris was said to be said to display metal plastic-like appearance and characteristics. The DIA-sponsored reports I received mentioned a highly engineered material called metamaterial as comprised of composite media. Metamaterial can be layered with metal and plastics. Throughout the received FOIA documents, mention is made of potential use of some of the materials in advanced aerospace platforms. References made to desired material characteristics, such as being extremely lightweight and tough, like the characteristics of debris found at the Roswell crash. Other material. Extensive references also made to the study and application of what the tests call metamaterial, including that some of this material can be used to slow down light and even bring light to a complete standstill, implying the ability to manipulate the speed of light, electromagnetic energy traveling at 186,000 miles per second, may induce invisibility by manipulating refraction, reflectivity, and increasing light absorption. The reports use terms like optical isolation and transparency and make reference to a metamirror technology, implying the ability to make something unable to be seen and or picked up by radar, scanning, or imaging. Has the interesting ability to compress electromagnetic energy. Such condensing can make information and energy storage smaller and their transfer faster by reducing volume. Exhibits a particular tunable resonance which was likely determined during fabrication. The phase tunable resonance refers to a vibration of large amplitude from a small stimulus. Very recent research shows potential in the field of energy harvesting technologies or pulling energy from the environment for low-power electronic devices. There seems to be many exciting but far in the future technical applications to these materials that will change the way our lives are lived. Metamaterial a coined and relatively recent word, is believed to be any material engineered to have a property that is not found in naturally occurring materials. Some of these materials appear to be made from assemblies of multiple elements fashioned from composite materials such as metals and plastics. These composite media can be engineered to exhibit unique electromagnetic properties. Made up from the sub-wavelength building blocks, most often based on metals, these metamaterials allow for extreme control over light energy and optical fields, enabling such effects such as negative refraction to be realized. Portions of the report center on next-generation amorphous metals, also called liquid metal or metallic glass, which are novel engineering alloys with disordered atomic scale structures. Metal is crystalline in its solid state, which means it has a highly ordered arrangement of atoms. Amorphous metals, though, are crazily disordered, a metal-like material so unique that it is believed it may one day replace plastic and metal in many applications. The material is stronger and lighter than any existing metal, can be injection-molded like plastic, with no rivets, seams, or joining, smooth like many reported UFOs, and will never corrode or rust. Imagine using a single razor blade for the rest of your life because it stays super sharp forever. A golf club so springy it can drive a ball further than any pro ever has. An artificial hip implant that performs better than a real hip. A cell phone case that is completely indestructible. 
The contract that Bigelow was granted was under the auspices of an official government UFO study, whose existence was revealed by the New York Times in 2017. The contract was for Bigelow to construct a specialized modified facility to hold the material for testing. The DOD Pentagon UFO study effort was called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP. It ran for some years and under more than one name, and according, according to informed sources, remains in operation to this day. What is inside these specially modified facilities that require such contracted technical services? What is the nature of this anomalous debris, and what are its properties that it requires shielding? The DIA Response This product is one in a series of advanced technology reports produced in financial year 2009 under the Defense Intelligence Agency, Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program. Comments or questions pertaining to this document should be addressed to AAWSA Program Manager, Defense Intelligence Agency, Washington, D.C. This is a notation placed on several of what the DIA calls Advanced Technology Reports, responsive to the FOIA request. Note that Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, is referred to by an alternative or predecessor name, Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Applications Program, or AAWSA. A letter was sent by the DIA to this author acknowledging the possession of recovered UFO material and the involvement of a defense contractor, granting access to some technical information while denying most. Scrolling past the letter begins some of the technology reports, continued in the second PDF included below. The first batch can be seen here, and then there's a link where you can go and see the first batch. The FOIA official responding, Steve Tomiski, explains that the DIA has identified five documents totaling 154 pages, so that's about 30-plus pages each, that are responsive to my request. Well over half of the documents have not been released, and such extraterrestrial material should study should generate thousands of pages relevant to the request, not just 154. The DIA cites exempt exemptions 3 and 6 of federal FOIA regulations as reasons that they are compelled to suppress certain parts of the documents. Exemption 3 allows the withholding of information prohibited from disclosure by federal statute and leaves no discretion on the issue due to potential harm to national security. Exemption 6 generally applies to records that involve personal privacy. It incorporates a balancing test that weighs any privacy interest against the public interest in disclosure. In the second PDF are several more of the 154 pages said to exist on the matter. It is in these documents that we gain the insights on the material as outlined earlier in this article. It is here that we learn of metamaterials, invisibility, slowing the speed of light, compressing electromagnetic energy, implanting memory metal in people, and other remarkable things. Sample key phrases include alluding to technologies these materials could one day bring us can be found within the name pages in the two PDF FOIA requests. Slow down light, pages 18, 27, and 6. Bring light to a complete standstill, page 17. Compress energy, page 6. Nitinol as a biomaterial, page 19. New materials based perfectly perfect absorbers of light, page 24. Novel optical isolators, page 6. What documents were withheld? The information provided in the FOIA responses seems to represent reports that are directly relevant to what was learned from the study of the UFO debris and how insight gained from those studies might be applied in the future, but does not include a detailing of the found debris itself. 
Disappointingly, the reports do not include much of what was requested, such as physical descriptions and composition of the materials, the origin of the materials, and the names of the involved scientists. That remains classified, but technical pursuit areas derived from the study of those materials, i.e. invisibility, energy concentration, light speed control, intelligent metal, were in part released. The release documents help to inform us of the potential applications of the materials, but do not offer deep insight into precisely what the debris is made of. They speak of recent experiments that provide new concepts and of theoretical developments that might result in new materials. The DIA believes it is being responsive to the FOIA request by acknowledging UFO debris, its storage by Bigelow, and by identifying areas of future applications of these materials without having to actually name responsible parties of what elements the material is comprised or how it is processed, etc. Some reports previously available. Despite the DIA's insistence that mine was an original FOIA request requiring extensive searching over a period of years, it appears that at least a couple of the reports have already somehow been released. Significantly, the report on nitinol memory metal, however, has no discernible previous publication. But the report entitled Metamaterials for Aerospace Applications and Metallic Glasses Paper were both posted in June 2020 and are deeply archived in the documents section of mysterywire.com. This is a relatively new website launched by Las Vegas TV investigative reporter George Knapp. Now, folks, um, I will admit I'm ignorant of that website, so as we talk here, I'm just going to be bookmarking that because uh, I definitely want to look at more of that. Anything to do with George Knapp, as long-term listeners of the show would know, is generally something that does interest me. Interestingly, these papers include the names of the scientists, authors of the papers. The DIA had denied me this in my request due to privacy issues and did not include the names in the documents sent to me. It remains that the context in which I received the documents was in direct response to requests for information derived from recovered UFO debris and the testing of potentially extraterrestrial material. My requests for documents were for the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, but there is deliberate obfuscation and purposeful con confusion coming from the DIA. The program operated earlier under another name, Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program, and the documents are stamped with this program name rather than ATIP. This allows the DIA to claim the studies relate to an, to an advanced military weapons program for defense, rather than an aero program identifying possible threats from outer space and the associated retrieval of flying saucer material. Bigelow Aerospace, where is the damn debris? Bigelow Aerospace was the brainchild of Robert Bigelow, a hospitality industry billionaire with a strong interest in things cosmic, the other dimensional, and the extraterrestrial. Bigelow associated with prominent people such as Senator Harry Reid and former rock star Tom DeLonge. Bigelow has had previous mystery ventures, such as the non-profit, now-defunct National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS. He was also at one time associated with the famous Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, where purportedly paranormal activity has been occurring for years. Bigelow brought a unique blend of money and resources, entrepreneurship, and an interest in the paranormal investigation to the fore. In 1999, Bigelow founded Bigelow Aerospace, developing crude space complexes and inflatable inhabitants inflatable habitats. Bigelow's facilities operated under great secrecy. According to their Still Up website, a warning to all is posted on their homepage. If you have been invited to visit Bigelow Aerospace's facilities, 
please be aware that you will need a valid driver's license or another form of government another form of government issued ID. Unless authorized by management, please note that cell phones, cameras, flash drives, and laptops are not allowed on property. In this link, we can see an aerial overview of the Bigelow facilities near Las Vegas. Nearly every window is blocked and everything is sealed in the extreme. Are these structures what the Pentagon refers to in their contract with Bigelow as specially modified facilities to house physical pieces of UFOs? The contract that Bigelow was granted under the auspices of an official government UFO study, whose existence was revealed by the New York Times in 2017 and ran for several years under different names, was to construct specialized modern facilities to hold the specialized mod modified facilities to hold the material for testing. The DoD Pentagon UFO study effort was called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. It ran for some years and under more than one name, including, as we've already said, AAWSA, and according to informed sources, remains in operation to this day under yet another name. What is inside these specially modified facilities that require such contracted te technical services? There's a bit of repeating in this um, article, so I do apologize, folks. Disturbingly, Bigelow Aerospace suddenly, and with little fanfare, quietly laid off nearly every single one of its 85 employees of March of last year. No real reason was given other than it was caused by, according to company spokesperson, a perfect storm of problems, including the toll of the pandemic. The concern, of course, is that with mass layoffs and the ceasing of active operation, where is the UFO debris now? The current whereabouts of these extraordinarily valuable UFO materials are unknown. Is it still held by Bigelow? If yes, why so, when the company is essentially defunct? Did the UFO material transfer to another custodial company? Was it returned back to the Pentagon? In an effort to find out where the alleged extraterrestrial metal is, former security and legal personnel of Bigelow Aerospace were recently contacted. Robert Bigelow, his security director, and his lawyer refused comment. Robert Bigelow himself does not answer my emails to him. Bigelow, now in his late 70s, seems to limit public discussion of his research. So I tried to contact Mr. Ryan Asselin, Asselin, sorry, the former director of security for Bigelow Aerospace. Before employment at Bigelow, Asselin held security roles in the U.S. Marine Corps. He also has experience in warehousing and logistics management. Hey, well, we've got something in common. Today, he is private security consultant in the Las Vegas area. He also self-publishes science fiction with at least one book involving a hostile alien race. An in-mail message inquiring where the debris may be was sent through LinkedIn as well as an email through his website contact page and an email to his home email address directly. None of these were answered. A reach out to the former general counsel for Bigelow Aerospace, John Field J.D. of Las Vegas, Nevada, now in private practice, yielded some insight. In this instance, I was actually able to speak to a former Bigelow insider. I left a message for him with his receptionist, eliciting his immediate callback. The message left was that the call was relative to Field's former affiliation with Bigelow Aerospace. I told him that I was contacting him to find out if he could explain, now that the company is dissolving, where the UFO debris may now reside. Does he know if it remains in a secure location, and has it been transferred to another organization? Field wanted to know who I was affiliated with and absolutely refused to discuss the matter in any way, repeating, I can't comment on that. I explained that the company is in dissolution and that as a citizen and taxpayer, I have the right to know if the UFO debris was given by the government to a private concern for storage and if it's still secure. 
given the company is going defunct. I said to Field that if Bigelow is no longer the custodian contractor for the debris, we have a right to know who is the current custodian. Field did not disagree, only repeating in lawyerly fashion that he could not say anything. In exasperation, I simply appealed to him. Where can I go from here? Can he help me at all? I told him I don't want to bother people about this that shouldn't be bothered. He suggested contacting Robert Bigelow directly. I did not tell him that Bigelow has refused my, me any communication. When I asked Field who represents the company as acting general counsel or as retained outside counsel as the company dissolves, that is, who is the successor taking care of last remaining business matters, he said that he had no idea. I told him that I did not believe him. I cannot accept that he just up and left Bigelow Aerospace without any knowledge of how the legal function of the corporation would continue to operate without him. He said that he did not like the direction of the conversation, and we parted. A time for more answers. What has been learned through the FOIA investigation is indeed historic. There are UFO materials that have been recovered. The materials have been studied, that have been studied, may one day bring us great advances in technology and other aspects of our daily lives. But the documents are incomplete by the DIA's admission, and the reasons that they cite are weak. Why not disclose from where the material was retrieved and by whom? Why did the, they redact the names and the authors of these technology papers? Because once identified, we can question them. The other claimed reason for examination, or sorry, exemption of their identities and what they learned relates to national security, which apparently is so great that there can be no discretion on the matter. I am going to challenge these exemptions that prevent release of requested information by filing with the agency's FOIA appeals officer. They must be compelled to tell us more about the extraordinary extraterrestrial hardware. Well, folks, there is a lot to unpack there. Wow. Um, interesting. So I'll make sure to have a link in the show notes. But this all goes back to the stories about Roswell. So people have said for a long time that there was this memory material that was found at the crash site that if you had a flat sheet of metal, so think of a ball of uh, a sheet of paper, crumple it up in your hands, and that this memory material would then unfold back to its original state. Now, I'll tell you what, folks, if this ends up being true, this is one of the biggest stories ever, not just with UFOs, but ever, because if our government has this material, and there's been all these skeptics and debunkers for years and years and years, and again, no problem with skeptics, but there have been people saying, oh, no, there's we don't have anything, and there's no proof. No one's ever got an ashtray from a UFO or a cigarette lighter. Well, if this ends up being true, folks, all those people just better shut the hell up because, uh, I mean, I don't know what more you would want after that, but I'm sure they'll be out there spinning, trying to spin this a certain way and say, oh, well, it's not really from UFOs and blah, 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 blah. Well, anyway, this is fascinating, and I'm going to be keeping a close eye on it. Again, Dave, thanks for prodding me, and I'm really glad. This is a massive article, but I'm glad I went all the way through it. This is going to be definitely something to watch over the rest of 2021. So we'll make sure to come back to that if there are any updates in future. Now, the next one here was sent to me by Dave again. So Dave, who is the chapter president for the Paranormal Sun in Missouri. So thank you, Dave. And this one is from Forbes. So this one is titled, What is behind the U.S. Navy's UFO Fusion Energy Patent? And this is from Ariel Cohen. And this one came out on February the 8th. When Dr. Salvatore Cesar Paez, an aerospace engineer at the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, 
or NAWCAD, filed a patent for a plasma compression fusion device in 2019. It was either a giant breakthrough or mad science. According to the patent application, the miniature device could contain and sustain fusion reactions capable of generating power in the gigawatt or 1 billion watts to terawatt or 1 trillion watts range or more. A large coal plant or mid-sized nuclear-powered reactor, by comparison, produces energy in the 1 to 2 gigawatt range. The revolutionary invention by Dr. Paez, if real, would produce nearly unlimited clean energy from something no larger than a sports utility vehicle. So folks, I covered a bit of this in the last CIA episode, but this is another article and there's definitely some good stuff here, so I wanted to make sure that I read this for you. Dr. Paez's fusion device is among a handful of outlandish technologies dubbed the UFO patents that have in some shape or form been pursued by the U.S. Navy. I've written before with some skepticism on the implications of Dr. Paez's purported compact fusion reactor for U.S. energy independence. The physicist appears to have bona fide credentials, including a Ph.D. from Case Western, and published some, some of his work, while much is presumably classified. He has been employed by the Pentagon for decades, and this isn't the first patent filed in his name, and all of them appear centered around what he calls the Pius effect. Dr. Pais posits that by controlling the accelerated spin or vibration of electrically charged matter, high-energy electromagnetic fields can be produced. One proposed use for such fields is an electromagnetic field generator device, which could be applied to alter the trajectory of earthbound asteroids over a period of time. While the patent makes clear that such a device would work only on small asteroids of under roughly 100 meters length or less, it isn't hard to grasp the interest of any defense agency in providing contingencies for such a scenario. Dr. Pais's in inertial mass reduction device is one of the most extraordinary patents. This technology suggests manipulation of quantum field fluctuations, which could reduce a vehicle's inertial and gravitational mass allowing it to travel at here-to-unseen here speeds. The reason the speed of light is something of a universal speed limit is that mass increases to infinite as one reaches it, demanding infinite energy to continue moving. The ability to reduce mass could have incredible implications for the future of space travel. Definitely. Only faster-than-light speeds of travel would allow for humanity to venture outside of the solar system. Well, that's not necessarily true. Uh, but it would definitely help get to some of those more distant places. His high-temperature superconductor patents would, like a fusion device, revolutionize global energy systems. The superconductors have no electrical resistance, meaning electricity can be transferred without loss of energy to unlimited distances. That could mean quite a drop in energy costs. But getting any superconductor to operate even as warm as room temperature is a long-standing problem. Last but not least is what Pais calls a high-frequency gravitational wave generator. The patent purports that the electromagnetic fields created by the Pais effect could be intersected, generating waves of gravity upon which a spaceship could propel itself to its destination. Such waves could also be used to deflect asteroids more effectively or communicate through solid objects. Any one of these UFO patents would transform modern science and society. It might be too early to break out the champagne, though. While Dr. Pais has spoken confidently about his work in the past, the Navy recently threw cold water on hopes of a breakthrough. Queries about his experiments were met with confirmation that a three-year, $508,000 assessment have found no proof of the Pais effect. 
For now, at least, the odds are good that the Navy may not lead the energy revolution, while President Joe Biden expands political capital squaring off against fossil fuel companies. That brings us back to this fusion device. Even if Dr. Pais is wrong, it doesn't mean fusion is going to stay the stuff of science fiction forever. The International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor Project, an initiative with roots stretching back to a November 1985 summit between Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev, is currently scheduled to generate its first small star in November of 2025. Various projects are racing them there, all with the shared goal of 2025. All this is to say that fusion might no longer be perpetually 30 years away. With some tangible, well-funded projects underway, it raises the question of why the Navy has previously gone to bat for Dr. Pais and his ideas which seem considerably ahead of their time, if not outright implausible. The other possibilities are worth pondering, though. Occam's razor would suggest that there might be something there. A genuine breakthrough in theoretical physics so advanced would require serious and well-funded lab work and prototype experimentation for years or even decades. Think of the long journey from J.J. Thompson's discovery of the electron in 1897 and Rutherford's atomic model in 1911 to the Manhattan Project from 1939 to 1946. There are defense applications to most physics breakthroughs, and that is plenty incentive to invest in any potential Enrico Fermi, Niles Bohr, Albert Einstein, or Andrei Sakharov. The patents could be a sort of hedging, ensuring that the U.S. can claim it if it was there first. A second explanation is that is that a U.S. disinformation operation is there to entice our adversaries into spending billions of dollars on dead-end research. That was more or less the initial thinking behind President Reagan's Star Wars initiative. By faking data, the officials behind the program hoped to entice the Soviets to burn billions for a then non-viable space-based missile defense system. Sending China on a wild goose chase for the Pais effect would be a clever use of half a million dollars. Otherwise, his research would be deeply classified and not patented. Lastly, and most out there, Dr. Pais's patents could be a cover for alien technology. If the recent disclosure by the Pentagon of possible encounters with extraterrestrial artifacts is true, such technology may be in U.S. government possession. Talk about a low-probability, high-impact event. I'm not sure if we will see faster-than-light space travel anytime soon, but with or without Dr. Salvatore Cesar Pais, the race for fusion power is on, and we are likely to see a successful result within our lifetime. So, look, that's a very interesting article, and it brings some very relevant topics to the table. This could be disinformation, where they're trying to get other countries to spend money looking at this effect that doesn't actually exist, and it would basically become a money sink for them. And although I read the article last week, I hadn't necessarily gone into too much thought after I read that article for you of what else might be behind it. So, look, that is very interesting. And the other thing is, obviously, if it is alien technology, let's just say, for a minute, let's just take that as a possibility. Well, that would be a great way to throw people off the scent and say, well, this was all discovered by this doctor and it wasn't had nothing to do with aliens. But the other thing there that I do find fascinating is, as they say, why has he been working for the Pentagon for 30 years if all of this is BS and he really doesn't know what he's talking about? Doesn't really sound like the type of person you would keep on the payroll for 30 years, especially at a Pentagon level now, does it? So, yeah, interesting, folks, and I'll keep an eye out. And as always, there'll be a link in the show notes to that article. So I've got a couple others here, folks. I'm going to try and rush through them as quickly as I can. 
so we can get into tonight's subject because we're already burning through the time. So the first one here, folks, is quite an interesting one. And this one is originally from the Wall Street Journal, but I found it for free via the Bangkok Post. And this one is titled, Forget Self-Driving Cars, The Pentagon Wants Autonomous Ships, Choppers, and Jets. Advanced technology developed for military use could eventually be integrated into civilian projects. Okay, and this is from February the 15th, so just yesterday, actually. Very interesting, and this was written by Andy P-A-S-Z-T-O-R, so Pazdor, Pazdor, okay, anyway. From pilotless jets engaging in dogfights to huge undersea vessels ferrying troops, the Pentagon is pushing to increase the U.S. military's use of automation. Defense moves are outpacing commercial automation efforts in the air, on the ground, and beneath the waves as officials seek to counter American adversaries' technological advances, according to current and former national security and industry officials. That progress, highlighted in cockpits managed primarily by computers, totally autonomous helicopters, and automated aerial refueling tankers is likely to show up in future civilian aircraft, advanced air traffic control systems, and a range of drone applications. Skeptics worry automated systems sometimes reflect software developers' desires to incorporate new capabilities without full testing. They point to examples of high-profile stumbles, ranging from glitch-prone radio communication systems to software problems that have deprived pilots of adequate oxygen at the controls of fighter jets. Unlike commercial automation, there aren't any regulators or outsiders to scrutinize Pentagon efforts, says Najamin Mescati, a human factors expert who teaches the University of Southern California. You really have to do your homework before integrating emerging new applications with older technology. But already, programs meant to supplement and eventually replace human operators are accelerating in every branch of the U.S. armed services. Yeah, and no shock. None of these cutting-edge systems are expected to be incorporated into fighting forces immediately, and some have run into budget and engineering hurdles. Still, the $740 billion defense authorization bill Congress passed in January is filled with mandates, carve-outs, and other provisions aimed at expanding automation and promoting autonomous operations across the services. Pentagon initiatives include teaming a traditional jet fighter with an autonomous version, sometimes called a loyal wingman, to illustrate the advantages of such combinations in mock dogfights. The Air Force also foresees Boeing Company's aerial tankers eventually pumping fuel into aircraft miles above the Earth without crew members guiding the process or ensuring the refueling connection operates properly. The Marines are working with Command Corp to devise ways to use autonomous choppers to deliver supplies to remote outposts, an idea dating to the height of combat in Afghanistan. United Technology Corps' Sikorsky unit has been working with the Defense Department's primary research arm to showcase advanced controls that are essentially that are essential to creating fleets of autonomous helicopters for an array of missions. The Army is moving to develop a version of the Bradley Fighting Vehicle, a 1980s-era workforce workhorse for transporting ground troops that could function without human operators inside. Navy admirals have sketched out a two-decade plan to create a potential fleet of more than 120 vessels that could, author- that could operate without crews on both land and water, though Congress has balked at some specifics. Other Navy concepts include working with Boeing and shipbuilder Huntington Ingalls Industries Incorporated to deploy large autonomous undersea vehicles called ORCAs 
to carry cargo and divers, gather intelligence, or to look for mines. In January, Congress authorized $125 million for research on long-duration autonomous ship operations, envisioning surface vessels, potentially built by Huntington Ingalls, that would operate for months on their own. Military leaders have been leading the charge for automation as part of a multi-pronged approach, said Tom McCarthy, an automation and robotic expert who is vice president of business development at closely held Motive Systems Incorporated, which built the arm on the latest Mars lander. They want systems that play well together, he said. Commercial airplane makers and their suppliers also say they have been pursuing enhanced automation, including planes with one pilot in the cockpit and another monitoring systems from the ground. Multiple companies are pursuing long-term engineering work on large cargo jets flying extended over-water routes, possibly without any pilots on board. Europe's Airbus SE has taken a huge step further, completing more than 500 test flights last summer, demonstrating autonomous taxi, takeoff, and landing capabilities. But faster progress is evident in the military. And while regulators typically resist rapid or dramatic changes that involve military and civilian craft-sharing airspace, the Air Force's uniformed and civilian leaders have made the biggest public push among the services towards extensive reliance on automation. The Air Force is driving automation in a way that it hasn't over the past decade, said Will Roper, who stepped down last month as the service's chief acquisition official. As part of a demonstration flight in December, the Air Force used artificial intelligence to effectively take over the role of a U-2 reconnaissance plane pilot to navigate. The aircraft, which had a pilot on board, also employed sensors to detect missile launchers. Under an agreement with Boeing for the aerospace giant to foot the bill for a revamped visual display system on its KC-46 tanker, the Air Force insisted on fixes intended to pave the way for eventual autonomous operation. As a result, we're going to have capabilities in the next three years that we didn't expect to have, potentially for decades, Mr. Roper said. In a series of interviews shortly before he resigned to make way for Biden administration appointees, Mr. Roper described other ways the Air Force is pursuing automation. Far-reaching innovation, he said, would require a combination of manned and unmanned aircraft teaming together to do missions that neither could do alone, as effectively. Employing artificial intelligence and autonomous aircraft flying in formation with human-piloted jet fighters, Mr. Roper said, allows aviators to focus on the more complex strategic task of fighting, instead of analyzing data about threats that can be compiled more quickly and, and focused seamlessly by computers. Pilots are going to be doing a lot more of, for us in the future. To cope with more capable adversaries, he said, adding that autonomous aircraft open up a completely different playbook for air warfare. Artificial intelligence and virtual reality already are poised to shake up how Air Force pilots are prepared for duty. Steve Quast, a retired Air Force three-star general, who used them in demonstration projects, seeking to cut the cost and time of pilot training, said the concept is expanding across the service. It's just a matter of fleshing it out. Okay, folks, so, um, interesting times, no doubt. Now, I know during the first Gulf War, the U.S. Army was looking for an autonomous solution to replace drivers in combat trucks, so the trucks that bring all the logistics, the weapons, the ammunition, the fuel, the food to the front line for soldiers because it was such a dangerous job. And this has been going on for a long time. Now, I don't need to tell most of you, you'll already have your own feelings on AI. To me, the bottom line is this. 
it's a very fine line. Once you start dealing with AI, it's already bad enough now with drone strikes and everything else that you've got some kids sitting at a computer screen in the U.S. deciding who lives and dies. Now, imagine when it's all run by a computer algorithm. Now, again, you can go right down the panic hole if you want to with this. Uh, let's say we start dealing with things like, quote unquote, insurrections or the government feels that there are certain groups that need to be removed for whatever reason. Well, whereas you may have humans in that capacity now as military soldiers, FBI, CIA, etc., who may be very squeamish about executing people for no good reason. I don't think AI is going to have any problem if ordered by the military to kill people, then it's going to do it. So, yeah, look, it's a very slippery slope and it's a very dangerous ground that we tread. And unfortunately, uh, in the next 20 years or so, I would say we're going to get to the point where some of these things are deployed more and more. And again, I don't want to be an alarmist, but that whole thing about a kill switch and disabling AI, I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. Once AI is out of the bag, in my humble opinion, it's out of the bag and you aren't going to shut it down once it gains sentience. So we need to tread very carefully in this space. Not that anyone's listening to what I have to say, but I will tell you this, it scares me, and it scares a lot of people with a lot more brains and a lot more money than me. So we shall see what the rest of 2021 brings on <laughs> in this realm. I had a couple more articles here, folks, that I was going to cover over, but I'm going to save those for another episode, or we're just going to have one massive segment of News of the Dam. And although it's great, and I'm sure a lot of you learn things, I also don't want this to just be a breaking news program. So we are now going to move on into our fascinating case for this evening. This is Walter Schrode, your roving reporter at KSRC Radio in Socorro, New Mexico. We have with us this afternoon Mr. Lonnie Zamora, the Socorro patrolman that, while chasing a car, found himself in an area about two miles west of Socorro and one mile east of KSRC radio station, at which time he reports he came upon an unidentified object resting on four legs. That as he drew closer, the object took off with a loud roar spouting blue, red flame and disappeared in the sky. A great number of cars and Socorro people have gathered here in front of the studios of KSRC to catch a glimpse of Mr. Zamora as he arrived and welcome him with their car horns. Mr. Zamora, after coming upon this object, just what did happen? We'll get back to the words of Lonnie Zamora himself later on in the program, folks. But first, we're going to go through the events of that evening. So on Friday evening, April the 24th of 1964 in Socorro, New Mexico, police officer Lonnie Zamora began chasing a teenager who was speeding through town. Lonnie chased the teen into the desert south of town when he saw a strange object in the desert. The white object appeared at first to be an overturned car. However, Lonnie looked closer and realized that it was an unknown object and that people appeared to be standing around it. Lonnie attempted to radio back to headquarters but could not speak through all of the static. Then, suddenly, a door on the side of the craft apparently closed, and the small people around the craft were gone, having apparently gone inside. Lonnie claimed that flames shot from the bottom of the craft with a deafening roar. It floated up about 20 feet and then flew away to the west. The weather was otherwise beautiful. He described the noise as a roar, not a blast, not like a jet. It changed from high frequency to low frequency, and then stopped. The roar lasted possibly ten seconds, as he approached on a gravel road. 
He saw a flame about as long as he heard the sound. Flame was the same color as best as I can recall. Sound distinctly from high to low until it disappeared. He explained that his car windows were down. Zamora notes that no other possible witnesses, except possibly the car in front, which he estimated might have heard the noise but not seen the flame because it would be behind the brow of the hill from their viewpoint. Zamora said he did not pay much attention to the flame, that the sun was to the west and did not help his vision, and he was wearing green sunglasses over prescription glasses. In interviews with Air Force investigators for Project Blue Book, he goes to some lengths to describe the long, narrow, funnel-shaped bluish-orange flame. He thought there might be some dust at the bottom and attributed it to the windy day. The weather was clear, sunny skies otherwise, just a few clouds scattered over the area. When Sam Chavez, a friend and fellow police officer, arrived at the scene, he realized that Lonnie was excited and concerned. Sam noticed that there were several deep landing-type marks on the ground. Sam believed him, knowing that Lonnie was credible and did not make stories up. U.S. Army officials from nearby White Sands Missile Range sent Captain Richard Holder to investigate the sighting. Holder also noticed the strange marks in the ground and also noticed a bush burned to a crisp on only one side. Holder found no evidence that Lonnie's UFO sighting was a hoax, and he felt it was genuine. State Trooper Ted Jordan was taking pictures of the scene when Air Force officials confiscated his camera. Another witness, still unidentified, pulled into a nearby gas station later that day. He told a gas station employee that he and his family had seen a UFO similar to the one that Lonnie described. The object apparently flew over their car, traveling at least 150 miles an hour. As you can imagine, it wasn't long before local media became aware of the sighting and got involved. Within days, reporters from the Associated Press and United Press International were in Socorro as well. Members of civilian UFO study group APRO were on the scene within two days, as were officials representing the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book. NICAP investigators appeared the following Tuesday. The first NICAP investigator was Ray Stanford, who would later write a detailed book account of his investigation. From the Tuesday, April the 28, 1964 edition of the Socorro, New Mexico, El Defensor Chieftain. Evidence of UFO landing observed. City policeman Zamora reports sighting egg-shaped object and views takeoff. Tourist sees craft just before landing. What appears to be substantial evidence of an unidentified flying object landing and taking off in Socorro has been observed. City policeman Lonnie Zamora, a highly reliable source, saw a four-legged, egg-shaped object and two persons in a gully a mile south of the courthouse shortly before 6 p.m. on Friday. He saw the object rise straight up and take off and disappear beyond Six Mile Canyon to the west. Some of the evidence of the landing and takeoff remained in the gully. There were four shallow holes where the object apparently landed on its legs. There were burned greasewood and seared clumps of green grass. There were two round, very slight depressions. No footprints were found. Zamora said he saw lettering on the side of the UFO and had sketched the lettering on a paper sack after the object had taken off. He did not believe the lettering was in English and observed no numerals as there are on known aircraft. Zamora said he was not at liberty to further describe the lettering. At least one other person, an unidentified tourist traveling north of US-85, saw the UFO just before it landed in the gully. Opal Grinder, and yes, that was his real name, was Opal Grinder, manager of the Whiting Brothers service station on 85 North, said the man stopped at the station and remarked that aircraft flew low around here. 
Grinder replied, there were many helicopters in this vicinity. The tourist said it was a funny-looking helicopter, if that's what it was. The man said further the object had flown over his car. It actually was headed straight for the gully, where it landed moments later. The tourist also commented that he had seen a police car heading up the hill. This was Lonnie Zamora's car. Grinder did not know of the object at the time and did not attach any importance to the traveler's remarks. A Tucson, Arizona couple was here Sunday to interview Zamora for a scientific article on the object. The woman said a minister and 26 persons in New Guinea had seen a similar object hovering for about two hours at an estimated altitude of 400 feet. It was reported the observers had seen a man on the deck of the object. This, folks, is the Father Gill case that I covered in Season 2, Episode 16. That's a fascinating case. Make sure you go back and check that one out. Major William Connor of Kirtland Air Force Base, Albuquerque, was also here to interview Zamora. The Major said he was not at liberty to comment. He and Air Force sergeants visited the UFO scene. Use of a Geiger counter at the scene was reported to have brought positive results. Captain Richard T. Holder of Socorro, the U.S. Army uprange commander with headquarters at Stallion Range Center on White Sands Missile Base, said Saturday, I was contacted on the evening of April 24th by local authorities and asked to provide assistance in identifying a reported UFO. After being appraised of the situation, I attempted to determine whether White Sands Missile Range or Holloman Air Force Base had anything that might produce the conditions described. Neither White Sands Missile Range nor Holloman had an object that would compare to the object described. There was no known firing mission in progress at the time of the occurrence that would produce the conditions reported. Zamora doesn't know what the object was, but for those who desire to speculate, there are three distinct possibilities. Firstly, it may have been a top-secret U.S. aircraft in advanced stage of development. Second, it may have been an advanced type of aircraft or spaceship of another power. Third, it may have been a space scout ship from another planet. Whatever the object was, it probably was the first reported concrete instance of a UFO in New Mexico. Policeman Zamora shifted from a routine task to a frightening out-of-this-world experience within a few minutes on Friday night. He was patrolling Park Street, where he had begun pursuit of a fast-traveling car several blocks ahead of him. Zamora was almost on the old road when he heard what he described as a blast or a roar. His first thought was that an aluminium building used to store explosives had blown up. He forgot about the speeding car and headed up a very rocky dirt road towards the building. On his third try, driving very slowly, he managed to get up the road which leads to the top of the mesa overlooking the gully where the UFO had landed. The policeman said he first saw the object at an estimated distance of 150 yards, and he thought it was an overturned car. He was looking out of his car window as he drove towards the top of the mesa. Zamora said one of the two persons at the UFO, whose back was to him, turned his head and looked straight at him. The two persons standing by the object appeared to be dressed in white coveralls, and at the distance Zamora saw them, they appeared to be childlike, that is, small. He did not notice what sort of headgear, if any, the two persons, presumably men, wore. Zamora continued driving up the hill to get a closer look at the object and the persons. When he stopped his car on the top of the mesa and directly opposite the place in the gully where the UFO had landed, he saw it again, but the persons were not outside the object on which the sun gleamed brightly. He got out of his car and started towards the UFO. Then he again heard the roar or blast that had brought him to the scene and saw flames. Dust was flying around the object. 
The policeman believed the object was about to explode. He was about 50 feet away from the UFO, and for protection he dropped to the ground and covered his face with his arm. No explosion occurred, and Zamora also realized the object was not heading in his direction. He raised his head slightly. He saw the UFO, which seemed to be heading south on landing, rise straight up for an estimated 20 feet, which brought it about on a level with the police car on the mesa top. The object appeared to maintain this altitude beyond the explosives building and due west in a straight line for about two miles to the Paralyte Mill. On the other side of the mill, the UFO gained altitude very rapidly, passed over Six Mile Canyon, became a speck in the sky, and disappeared. Zamora said there was a sharp whining sound at the end of the road preceding the object's takeoff. As the object got into the air, the noise quietened. The object did not leave a jet trail. Reports of other supposed UFOs having mentioned that they fly with little or no noise. Zamora radioed the sheriff's office immediately after the object had taken off. State Police Sergeant Sam Chavez, State Policeman Ted Jordan, and Under Sheriff James Lucky responded. Chavez and Lucky said the burned clumps of green grass and the greasewood were still hot when they arrived. The military later took samples of the burned earth for analysis. An inspection of the scene Saturday morning showed the object landed astride a narrow, rock-strewn dry wash in the gully. Officers earlier had circled with stones the four places where the legs of the object had touched earth. The holes were shallow, about a foot long by six inches wide. They did not appear to have been made by an object striking the earth with great force, but by an object of considerable weight settling to earth at slow speed and not moving after touching the ground. The two legs of the object that Zamora saw probably were about two and a half feet long. It was about 12 feet from one landing hole to the other on the west side and 15 feet between the two on the east side. The width probably was nine or more feet. The clumps of, of green grass and two greasewood bushes seemed to have been seared all at once by an extremely hot flame. There were also broken branches on one greasewood plant. The two round depressions were four and five inches in diameter respectively. The cause of the landing of the object, like its identity and its source, remain unanswered. Was the landing in the secluded, little-frequented gully for a test, or caused by momentary mechanical difficulty? After Captain Holder was appraised of the UFO occurrence, he made a report of it in the proper agencies at WSMR, or White Sands Missile Range. Investigations of the incident will be conducted by designated government agencies. By Sunday afternoon, Hundreds of curious persons had trampled the scene, and there was virtually no evidence left of the landing marks. The El Defensor Chieftain was published twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Zamora's encounter had happened on a Friday, and so though the report from the Chieftain was from the first reporter on the scene, its story wasn't published until the following Tuesday, April the 28th of 1964. The story by that time had already gone national, and the Albuquerque, New Mexico Journal had carried a story somewhat at odds with and published one day before that of the Chieftain. Here's that article for you folks. UFO witness sighs at reports of what he supposedly said. By Charles Richards from Socorro, UPI. A policeman who gained sudden national attention Friday after he saw an egg-shaped flying object near Socorro said Sunday his experience had taught him something. Socorro policeman Lonnie Zamora said he would turn around and run, just like he did Friday evening, but next time, he'd never mention it to a soul. There have been so many phone calls, he cited, 
and most of Sunday he spent shaking his head over some of the reports of what he supposedly said about the incident. Maybe you'd better ask some of these other guys, Zamora told reporters. I'm the only one who saw it, but they seem to know more about it than I do. Denies Seeing Creatures Zamora denied he had seen any little creatures around the object and said the unusual machine rose off the ground and flew slowly away in a southwesterly direction until it faded out of sight. It never got more than about 20 feet off the ground while he was watching it, Zamora said. Contrary to reports, the object had zoomed up and away from him at a high rate of speed. Two investigating officers from Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque said reports a man from the Pentagon would come to Socorro were also false. Term fantastic. Captain Richard T. Holder, White Sands Missile Range Commander, termed the incident fantastic, but referred to Zamora as a reliable witness. Neither White Sands nor Holloman Air Force Base has anything which would produce the situation described in the report, Holder said. Zamora said the craft cleared a dynamite shack by only a couple of feet as it departed. He lost sight of it within a matter of minutes, he claims. He noticed the object after he investigated a cloud of smoke about a mile south of Socorro. He was aware of the dynamite shack in the vicinity, and at first he thought it had exploded, he said. The craft was in a draw, not visible from main roads. He first saw it from about 200 yards and thought it was an overturned car. He said he saw what appeared to be a pair of white coveralls, but whether anything was in them, he did not know. Within 100 feet. He eventually got within about 100 feet, and it was then Zamora said he noticed it was something out of the ordinary. It had red lettering of some kind on the side, Zamora said. He said the object was on the ground, supported by four girder-like legs. At the site, four five- to six-inch depressions were found, as well as a couple of round tracks about four inches in diameter, which officers theorized might have been made by occupants of the craft. They even went so far as to estimate by the depression that the tracks were made by a being of approximately 120 to 160 pounds. On the spot where the object supposedly sat was a once green bush. Most of it burned bare by exhaust heat. Zamora said it was still smoking several minutes after the craft's departure. Leslie J. Lawrenson, a member of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, drove to Socorro from Tucson, Arizona, to take samples of the soil and indicated the story was credible to him. Reliable people are seeing incredible things, Lawrenson said. Similar things have happened all over the world, and certain details corroborate. Seemingly, either Zamora had changed his story, or the first report from the chieftain had gotten it all wrong. Now there were no little men, but merely white coveralls. Now, instead of a roar attracting his attention, it was a cloud of smoke. Meanwhile, by midweek, as part of the Air Force investigation, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, Project Blue Book's official scientific consultant on the UFO phenomenon, arrived. The following is from the April 30, 1964 of the Lewiston, Idaho Morning Tribune. And again, long-term listeners of the program will know that the Paranormal Sun's journey all started in northern Idaho, and I know very well where Lewiston is. I've been there many times. The article is titled, Radar Men to be Checked on Flying Object Report. Socorro, New Mexico, AP. One of the things that bothers the scientists investigating New Mexico's unidentified flying object reports for the Air Forces, the lack of mention of radar contacts. It's my understanding New Mexico is infested with radar equipment, said Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Northwestern University, an astronomer who is a special consultant to the Air Force. I'm going to check to see if there have been radar contacts that might tie in with these reports. Hynek visited Wednesday the secluded hill where Socorro policeman Lonnie Zamora reported seeing an egg-shaped object 
fly away from a draw last Friday evening. Other reports have followed. The Socorro report and another at La Madera in northern New Mexico were similar in that state and military authorities confirmed a scorched area where the object was supposed to have landed, and wedge-shaped impressions that appeared to have been left by some type of landing gear. Heineck would not offer an opinion on just what Zamora did see. He said he had investigated many such sightings, but this is one of the clearest. No, that's not the right word. Just say it is one of the soundest, best-substantiated reports as far as it goes. Usually one finds many contradictions or omissions in these reports, Heineck said, but Mr. Zamora's story is simply told, certainly without any intent to perpetuate a hoax. The story, of course, was told by a man who obviously was frightened badly by what he did see. He certainly must have seen something. Zamora's reliability as a witness was supported by Dr. Lincoln La Paz of the University of New Mexico, who has an international reputation in running down reports on fireballs and meteorites. I would first point out that we are not personally involved in the investigation of these unidentified flying objects, La Paz said, but I do want to say that I have had contacts with Mr. Zamora for 16 years in my work, and he is a thoroughly dependable observer. Heineck said the lack of radar contact reports bothered him. So often we have such a contact, and then we can trace the object to some natural phenomena or aircraft, he said. The scientist also discussed the markings that Zamora said he saw on the side of the object a red, inverted V with bars through it. But Dr. Heineck would have much more to say in his official reports. Behind the scenes, the first pages of what would become a mammoth dossier of nearly 200 pages, including dozens of news articles, had begun to take shape. At Project Blue Book, the official Air Force investigation into the UFO phenomenon, it all began with a phone message. This is a summary of a UFO report received by phone on the 25th of April, 1964. Caller, Captain Theodore W. Cunney, 1005th Special Investigation Group, Washington. Called at 2130 Eastern Standard Time. That's 930 p.m. for those of you who who don't know the military lingo. Call received by O.D., Major K.S. Samashima. UFO data was received by Captain Cunney from a Lieutenant Colonel King, Counterintelligence Division, Albuquerque, New Mexico who in turn read about it in the local newspaper and also was provided data by the FBI. The alleged UFO sighting took place at about 1800 MST, which is Mountain Standard Time, so about 6 p.m. As stated already before, Lonnie said he saw this object about 5.50 to 5.55 p.m. on the 24th of April. The object allegedly was witnessed in a rural area on the Stallion Range Center in Socorro, New Mexico. The alleged witness was a reputable local police officer by the name of Lonnie Zamora. Zamora was chasing a speeding motorist when he saw the the object from the road at a distance of about 200 feet. He claims to have seen two men in white overalls getting into the silver-colored football-shaped object about 15 feet long. The vehicle allegedly took off with a roar, rose to an altitude of about 20 feet, and disappeared rapidly to the west. Upon being informed of this, the Army a Captain R.T. Holder of White Sands, roped off the area. Also, the FBI at Albuquerque proceeded to the area and allegedly confirmed that something had been there. They reportedly found 4-inch by 5-inch impressions in the ground, somewhat like stand legs. The impressions appeared burned. None of the other area appeared to be burned. The newspaper stated that the Army took soil samples. The above is all Captain Cunney could report. It is suggested that Lieutenant Colonel King, Albuquerque, 268-2107 be contacted for proper questioning of Lonnie Zamora. 
And then it's got some handwritten notes here at the bottom, folks, and I'm going to do my best to read them. So it looks like it says, Colonel Roll, Air Force Calm, post called, wanted to know if there is any follow-up action being taken. On call last night to Lieutenant, and then whatever the name is, I just can't make it out. Colonel Harris called and wanted additional details, especially name. Colonel Perkins, Air Force Command Post, called, suggested we touch base with Captain Holden. And then they've got his number here through S-E-A-N at White Sands. So you've got this note of that first call and then some handwritten notes, which I find very interesting because it shows that it was followed up. Sergeant David Moody, a member of Blue Book's staff, was dispatched the next day from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, home to Project Blue Book, to Socorro. He would file this three-page report. So here's the three-page report for you folks. Information relative to the Socorro sighting of UFO by Lonnie Zamora. At 0530, so again, that's 530 a.m., Sunday the 26th of April, 1964, I received a call from Captain Hector Quintanilla requesting that the Socorro sighting be investigated immediately and that he advised as soon as possible of the results of an initial investigation. This action was dictated by a call from the command post at 330, a call from the emergency action group at 430, and another call from the command post just prior to my notification of the event. The contacts for data already collected were Lieutenant Colonel King and Captain R.T. Holder. At 0600, I contacted the base duty officer and was informed that Major Connor was the Kirtland investigator of UFO reports. I contacted Major Connor and requested permission to accompany him to Socorro. I contacted Colonel King and a meeting was arranged for 8.30. The only information that Colonel King had was in the form of an FBI report made by Agent Barnes on Friday night following the sighting. This report was forwarded to Washington, and Colonel King had notified the command post, this the FBI to be included as an attachment in Major Connor's report. A Geiger counter was obtained, and Major Connor and I departed for Socorro at 10.30, arriving at 12 o'clock in Socorro, so it's 10.30 a.m. and arriving at noon. We contacted Sergeant Chavez, the state police officer, who was the first to reach Lonnie Zamora, and who was the only witness and during the interview, the following information was obtained. Shortly after 1700, which is 5 p.m., Lonnie Zamora was on patrol and radioed into the city police that there was a 1074, or an auto accident, and he was proceeding to investigate. It appeared as if an auto had turned over and two people were standing by its side. From the ensuing activity monitoring on the radio, Sergeant Chavez immediately made an effort to reach Patrolman Zamora and arrived about three minutes after the object under observation by Lonnie Zamora had disappeared. Sergeant Chavez then went to the area where the craft or thing was supposedly sighted and found four fresh indentations in the ground and several charred or burned bushes. Smoke appeared to come from the bush, and he assumed that it was burning. However, no coals were visible, and the charred portions of the bush were cold to the touch. Sergeant Chavez contacted the FBI, who in turn contacted White Sands, and Agent Barnes and Lieutenant R.T. Holder of the letter organization arrived to conduct an investigation and obtain various samples of the soil and charred bush. Sergeant Chavez secured the area and made an investigation of the ground surrounding the scene. He determined that the only tire marks were those of Patrolman Zamora's vehicle and the state police car, and found no prints or tracks activity of any kind other than that noted in the FBI report. 
Further, he stated that the marks were definitely fresh and the dirt showed evidence of dew or moisture. Sergeant Chavez is firm in that no track activity was evident. At no time did he observe the craft or object described by Patrolman Zamora and explained that he had taken the wrong road as he was, in fact, looking in the opposite direction for a part of the time. Therefore, had the object been visible, he would not have been in a position to see it. Sergeant Chavez took Polaroid photos of the holes and area. These are available to us. Following the interview with Sergeant Chavez, Sergeant Zamora was interviewed and a trip to the location was made. All persons interviewing Zamora were impressed with his sincerity and are of the belief that if a hoax has been perpetrated, Lonnie Zamora is definitely not a part of it. The object was described as white or light in color and egg-shaped. During the interview, it was apparent that a visit to the location was necessary to determine the time sequence of the event and the related motion of the object, as well as to obtain speeds and distances of flight. At approximately 4 p.m., we proceeded to the site, accompanied by two reporters from the local press. The sequence of events was repeated, and total duration from the initial contact with the event to the time of its disappearance did not exceed 10 minutes. A Geiger countercheck for background radiation was made in the presence of the press and Sergeant Zamora, and no radioactivity count was present. The counter was checked with Major Connor's watch and found to be in good working order. So, in the old days, folks, uh, your watch or clocks, in fact, I've got an alarm clock with it, they would coat the hands of the watch face or of the clock with radium so that it would glow in the dark. So they would have tested this Geiger counter by using his wristwatch because it would have given off radioactivity. The following is a sequence of the event as reported by Lonnie Zamora. Shortly after 5 p.m., he was on patrol when he heard a noise that he thought to be an explosion of the mayor's dynamite shack known to be in that direction. He turned off the road and proceeded to a point up a hill where he could see what looked like a car turned upside down with two white things he assumed to be occupants of the car, and he radioed this information to police headquarters. He went down a hill where the object was not visible and had to make two tries to get up this hill in his car. As he came over the top of the hill, about 300 yards from the object, it appeared to be a thing on four pronged legs, and the two white things, described as coveralls, were no longer visible. Continuing to a point about 150 yards from the object, he parked the car and got out and approached the object to a point about 100 feet away. At this time, the object made a rumbling noise or rattling noise, and a blue flame like an arc welder, turned to yellow or orange at the end, came from the center of the bottom. The object was about the size of an auto, so a car, and light-colored, not reflective, but white or silver or just light-colored. From this position, the base of the craft was in the bottom of the gully and not visible to Lonnie Zamora. He thought the thing was going to explode and he became frightened. He ran to a point behind his car, dropping his glasses on the way. He hid behind the car, using his arm to shield his eyes. He remained in this position for not more than 10 seconds, at which time the noise stopped and his initial fear of the object lessened. He looked up and the object rose to a point of 15 to 20 feet altitude, with the legs still not visible. A red marking was evident, and a drawing of this marking will be attached at the end of the report. Mr. Zamora is firm that the color was red. At this point of altitude, 20 feet max, the flame was no longer visible and the craft hovered for not more than a few seconds and began to move laterally to his right, southwest, along the line of the gully, just missing the dynamite shack by not more than two or three feet and fading in the distance near a mill about six miles away.
Lonnie Zamora's description of the object is vague, the only specific detail being the red markings. All descriptions are general in nature. At no time did the flight of the object rise above the mountain background. Disappearance of the object from time of hovering took about three minutes. About three minutes later, Sergeant Chavez arrived on the scene. Area Background Photos have been obtained of the background. An airfield, which is private, is located about a mile to the opposite side of the gully where the object was located and Zamora's car was parked. There is a large white signboard at the edge of the area. To the right, about 200 feet, is the dynamite shack, about 6 feet tall, 4 feet square, and silver in color. Measurements of these factors can be made if deemed essential. The sighting was made at least an hour before sunset. At 6.30 p.m., the sun was still visible above the mountains to the west. Lieutenant Holder was visited, and the report made by the FBI agent, Mr. Barnes, and Captain Holder, read by Major Connor. Captain Holder claimed no knowledge of the red mark. Extensive diagrams of the holes had been made and measurements taken. He indicated that the samples could be analyzed at White Sands. Also, a check had been made with the local radar stations and no UI tracks carried at the time of the sighting. Further check indicated that no helo activity was in the area or helicopters. White Sands has two or three white helos, white helicopters, but at the time were located on the other end of the range and were not in operation the base activity being secured until Monday morning. A copy of the FBI report and Captain Holder's report and measurements to be forwarded to Major Connor, along with analysis of the charred specimens. No conclusion as the cause could yet be reached by myself or Major Connor. Coral Lorenzen and husband were in Socorro at the time and had interviewed both Lonnie Zamora and Sergeant Chavez, and also Captain Holder prior to the arrival of Major Connor and myself. Included in in Major Connor's IR, as attachments will be the FBI report, Captain Holder's report, and photos of the area, and also specific slides taken that evening by a state trooper accompanying Sergeant Chavez to the scene. Specific statements as to radar activity, none, helo activity, all known helos not in the area, and inquiry into the red markings should be made. Copies of the local news releases have been forwarded to Captain Q and the basic investigative efforts have been completed. I called Captain Q upon return from Socorro at 19.30 or 7.30 p.m., Sunday the 26th of April, and advised him of the above information. So as you can see here, folks, this is not your typical sighting of the planet Venus or something similar that somebody goes out and looks and very quickly explains it away and says, oh, that's what happened. So yes, this just gets more and more fascinating. Now, the next person on the case is without a doubt one of the most famous people in the history of ufology, none less than Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He's long been a controversial figure in the UFO community, but his findings on the Zamora case were again astounding, and he always felt that Lonnie Zamora was telling the truth. So, my friends, we're going to leave it on that cliffhanger, waiting for J. Allen Hynek to turn up and render his own opinion on this case. But I wouldn't leave you hanging, and I've got something excellent for you to listen to. At the top of the show, you would have heard that very beginning where the radio announcer was asking Lonnie Zamora what he saw and what happened with his case. So now I'm going to play the rest of that interview for you, and then next week we'll pick up with Dr. J. Allen Hynek being on the scene. I went up that little road for about half a mile, I guess. Uh... Came up to this uh, little barking deal there 
on the side of the road, and I sort of glanced out the, of the window, looked to my left, and seen this white object on the ground. So I thought it might be a car that had turned over. Uh -huh. So I was in a real big hurry going out there to investigate. Thought maybe somebody would be hurt. Uh, that time I saw this white ache an egg-shaped looking object. Is it, it looked something like a, like an egg, you mean? Yeah, yeah, from the distance I was, it looked like an egg to me. About the size of a car, I think uh, someone said. Yes, sir, it looked like a car that turned over. Uh -huh. That's why I say it's the size of a car. And uh, did it have any kind of markings on it of any kind that you noticed? Yes, it did. Uh, not from that, uh, that uh, far, I didn't see the markings. When I went up closer to it, I did see the markings. And uh, someone said that uh, the markings that you saw it was an, an upside-down V with three lines running through it. No, sir, I couldn't tell you that because they still uh, don't want me to say nothing about oh, markings. They don't want you to say anything about the markings. All right, we won't question you on that. And if we run into an area that they don't want you to uh, talk about, well, you just say so. And this happened about 5.30 Friday afternoon. It uh, happened about uh, 5.50, about 10 minutes to 6. About 10 minutes to 6. And uh, you did place a call in to Sergeant Chavis of the state police to come on out uh, and help you with the investigation. As soon as I saw this uh, object, with, I didn't know what it was. I placed a call to uh, Sergeant Chavis of the state police. Told him if he would come out there and help me on this. He said, yes, I'll be right there in about a few minutes. And he arrived uh, uh, just about uh, two or three minutes after the object had uh, taken off and, and left. Well, uh, the object was still about a couple of months up there when he arrived. Uh, it was still at that direction it went. It went out over the top of the mountain. And we've heard several reports that it flew low, uh, like it was dragging something. And we've heard some... Uh, it was very low to the ground. At the time I was seeing it, it was very low to the ground up to the perlite uh, mill there, and then it started gaining altitude. Now, I also uh, it was reported to me that when you first drove up into uh, this area and sighted uh, this object that the motors were running and it was going uh, or some such, uh, such sound as that. Is that uh, correct? Uh, I, I couldn't say because it happened so fast. Uh, uh -huh. I, I started running those. Scared. Well, I don't blame you. There's a thought something that even scares me yet. Uh, now, you did say that you saw uh, two what appeared to be people dressed in white uniforms with, uh, did they have helmets on like spacemen or anything? No, sir. I wouldn't say that there were people. I just, I saw something white, white coverall. That's what I could say. It looked like there was something in white coverall. Right. But you didn't, you couldn't identify them as actually being a human being as no, you sir. and I are. No, sir. I couldn't. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, did, you, you didn't know where they turned and saw you or, or what then? Well, uh, to my, I, I would say that this, this white object turned and saw me. Yes. Were they two of them? I would say were two because one was in front and the other object was in the back. Did you have ch a, a chance to, to notice what kind of a doorway they had to this, uh, this uh, object, this flying object, didn't notice any doors, no. And uh, uh, when that took off, uh, 
it, it made a loud, loud roaring sound. Uh, is that uh, yes, sir, that very loud noise, roar sound. And then after it got up in the air about 20 feet, well, the sound seemed to disappear? The sound was uh, disappeared and was very, very quiet. You could hear a pin drop there. And uh, now the, the markings it left on the ground, now the reports that I have had, and I haven't had a chance to go and take a look, and the winds yet to be probably uh, spoiled a lot of that anyway, was that... Uh, they were deep indentations in the ground, approximately 10 inches wide and 6 to 8 inches deep, uh, about 15 feet apart. Is that, uh, is that a correct report? Well, it, I would say it was about 19 feet apart uh, of the uh, prints. Uh-huh. And were there any other prints, like footprints, around the area at the, right after the... Take off uh, when you were making the investigation. There were some prints, but I wouldn't know if there were footprints or anything. Just prints, I would say. Uh, they didn't. You couldn't identify them as actually being a footprint. Just no. indentations, like maybe somebody might have walked there, or somebody right. might have yeah. walked there. Somebody walked around there because there was. When I got there, there was nobody around there yet. Now there was, uh, according to a report on one of the news, uh, the television stations in Albuquerque claimed that they had a call uh, just about 5.30 in Albuquerque of a, of a sighting about a flying object flying in this direction. Did you hear anything about that? No, sir, I didn't. Which, uh, if, if that be true, means that someone in Albuquerque saw this object flying in this direction just prior to your sighting it. And uh, which collaborates uh, the fact that there was something here. Now, it's the feeling, I get the feeling, at least Lonnie, as with the people that I've talked to and they were out in the area, that uh, they are quite sure that something landed there and something took off from, from this spot because of not only the imprint that is left in the ground, but the fires that it started and, and the method of which uh, uh, the fire or the power that it was, whatever it was using, kind of spread itself as it took off. Is that uh, right? Right. Uh, I know there was something out there because I see it. And uh, uh, what was your immediate reaction as soon as you realized that this thing might be an object from outer space? Well, I didn't think it would be an object from outer space because I, I don't believe in, in things like this from outer space. Well, uh, it was something that you'd never seen before and right. enough to, to scare you to, to run in the other direction. Well, what, what scared me was the loud noise in the flame that the uh, dirty head under it. It had a, a large flame then right. as it took off. Mm -hmm. uh, was it a yellow flame? or a It was a bluish, uh, bluish uh, orange flame. I thought this object was going to blow off this one started running back. And uh, did you notice whether the uh, these arms that it was sitting on retracted back into the object as it flew away or you not? Have, uh, you didn't have time. time. And besides just running in the other direction right. at that time, I would have done too. Are there any other things uh, about uh, this fighting that you think our listening audience might be interested in or something that you'll be allowed to tell us? No, that's all I saw. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, you, did it disappear into the high sky after it got over around the perlite or, or just disappeared? Yes, flew low to the perlite mine, then from there on it just so fast that you could barely do right straight up in the air. Have to be paying attention to what you were looking at to see what what he was doing. Uh huh. Well, uh, 
you think we're going to get any more of them around here? Oh, not, not immediately. Well, it was uh, quite an interesting experience, I'm sure, and it has caused an awful lot of comment. Uh, did the investigators that were called in uh, make any comments at all in one direction or the other, with the exception of that they do not have any such object in this area? Oh, they are still puzzled themselves, yes. And there's been no report on uh, the samplings they took of the uh, area around there from the burning brush and the area that the blast hit the ground. That might give them a clue as to what kind of power was being used on this. No, sir, no. Uh Uh-huh. Well, uh, I think I've just about covered it here. Uh, Let's see. uh, It wasn't dragging anything. We had a report that uh, it was dragging something as it left. No, I wouldn't say it was dragging nothing, just low to the ground. And uh, you can't think of anything else than about the sighting of this flying object that our listening audience might uh, be interested in. No, that's all I'll say now. Well, Lonnie, I'm sure you've been getting an awful lot of uh, questions and a lot of inquiry. I imagine you're beginning to get a little tired of it, actually, for so many people calling and asking you about it. Maybe this will be one way to keep uh, too many people from having you have to go through the story over and over again. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Mr. Lonnie Zamora. This is the gentleman, the support patrolman, that uh, Friday at around 10 minutes to 6, come up on an object, a flying object, an unidentified flying object, as the uh, government prefers to call them. Uh, Excuse me, Walter, I've got some some military people at the service office that want to talk to me now. I believe they're from UFO. Uh, well, you have some military people that are here from uh, UFO to talk to you right now and to ask you some more questions yes, about sir. this. And uh, they have not in any way tried to indicate that they didn't want us to uh, to uh, cover this type of maneuver. No, yet. sir, I just told them uh, I was going to come here and talk to you on the radio station. It's just all right. Well, that's, that's fine. And uh, we would be interested in knowing uh, what they think about it if, 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 if they will allow it. And after you get through talking to them, if you would call us back here at KSRC, and to give us some of the information that they might allow you to let us broadcast. We'd be glad to. All right. And, uh, Mr. Zamora, I hope that you don't come upon any more of these objects. (laughs) (laughs) Unless we find out exactly what they are. So it's been a pleasure, Mr. Zamora, having you in our studios, and we want to thank you, and I know our listeners thank you, and this is uh, expressed by the great number of cars that are out here in front of our studios just to get a glimpse of uh, what we might call a Socorro celebrity right at the moment. Thank you again, Mr. Zamora. It's been very nice having you on our KSRC studio. You've just been listening to a KSRC radio special featuring Mr. Zamora and Mr. Zamora's So, folks, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing better than hearing from the actual witnesses, and it's amazing that some of this kind of material like this and the Father Gill interview have survived over the years. So I love having access to those so that I can play them for you. So next week, we will pick up with J. Allen Hynek turning up on the scene in Socorro and what he found out, and there's still plenty more to this case, folks, to keep you interested. Now, as always, I will leave you with a quote from Art Bell which is, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out, however it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached. 
And if ever there was a time that those words ring true, it's definitely in this case. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.